0: I will say that we really kind of ignored how uncomfortable skinny jeans are for a solid decade.
1: Leisure wear, like sweatpants, are going to be like a even bigger thing now, right? After a lot of people sat at home and just put them on all day.
2: I've been on a joggers kick. <laughs> These are so comfortable. This is what's next in fashion with 538
0: Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Democrats delayed a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill last week after progressives insisted that they would not vote for it until there's an agreement on a separate social programs bill. Some of Senator Joe Manchin's lines in the sand on the price of that social programs bill were clarified, but it's still not clear what it will end up looking like. For now, the Democrats' legislative agenda is stalled while lawmakers try to resolve their differences. Today, we're gonna talk about why Democrats have reached this point. We also got a question from a listener suggesting that Republicans are better at achieving their policy goals than Democrats. As Democrats grapple with trying to pass their agenda, we're gonna ask whether that's actually true. And we'll look at some polling that suggests large portions of both parties think their party loses more than it wins on the issues they care about. We'll also check in on the Virginia gubernatorial election, which is just a month away. It will be an important test of the national environment exactly a year ahead of the 2022 midterms. And here with me to do all of that are politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also with us is managing editor, Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah.
2: Hi, Galen.
0: And elections analyst, Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. All right. So Monday morning, we got a lot to talk about. Let's begin with last week's debates within the Democratic Party. So leadership had hoped to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the House on Thursday. That was after previously hoping to pass it in the House on Monday. That didn't happen because there wasn't an agreement within the party on a separate social programs bill. We talked about this a little bit last week, but to get the lay of the land after another week of back and forth, what are the current cleavages within the party over pushing these two bills forward?
1: I mean, I think a pretty clear cleavage is cost, at least in the sense that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona both seem to view the $3.5 trillion mark, and that's over 10 years, that's been thrown around a lot regarding that social spending plan or budget framework is too large. And Manchin actually came out and said that he'd like to see something around one and a half trillion. Does that mean that it couldn't be a little bit more than that? No, it might be able to be uh, in the end. But I think what's going on here is that moderates in the Democratic Party are in a position where they got to get things through the Senate, and so Mansion and Cinema hold hold a lot of cards here. So if they don't think it should be as big as three and a half trillion dollars, it's possible that the deal might have to be adjusted quite a bit in order to meet their approval.
3: That's right. It was also interesting in that it was kind of the first time that Biden owned in discussions with Democrats because he went to the Hill last week that these two bills have to move in tandem. That is something that Pelosi has promised for a while, and progressives did threaten to sink the bipartisan infrastructure bill because there still wasn't enough clarity, as Jeffrey was saying, about what the final price tag will be for this bigger, more ambitious spending plan that Democrats are trying to push through. And so, you know, it was kind of a win in some ways for progressives in terms of their faction of the party exerting clout. The moderates are the ones who had really pushed for this vote last week. They didn't get that. But ultimately, the moderates, particularly within the Senate, particularly Sinema, particularly Mansion, are going to wield a lot of power in terms of like what the final price tag for that bill is. And of course, with the shenanigans around extending the debt limit, there's a real timeline here for Democrats to try to get these things tied up together.
2: Yeah, I think Sarah and Jeff covered it pretty well. But last week was basically would progressives allow the infrastructure bill to be voted on without an agreement in place on the Build Back Better bill. And they wouldn't. So I think if we eventually get to a place where the cinemas and the mansions of Congress, both literally in the Senate, and their counterparts in the House, bring that overall price tag on Biden's spending plan, the social programs plan, bring that down a bit, and then both bills are passed together, that seems like the compromise we're heading towards anyway. The Build Back Better plan won't be $3.5 trillion. It'll be closer to $2 trillion, and it'll pass in some tandem with the infrastructure bill. If they both pass, it could all fall apart, too.
0: This split that we've seen play out over the past week, and to be honest, in weeks before that as well, is it surprising in the sense of, is this a historically big schism to have within a party that's governing, and is it surprising given the specific lawmakers that are in office as well?
2: I think no, 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 and no. I think I think there's an extra no in there, but no, no, and no. Look, the Democrats have really, really small majorities in both chambers of Congress, and the plans are putting forward are like big, big plans. They include a lot of money. They include some really ambitious policy proposals. So the idea that Biden was going to pass some kind of New Deal Part Two with the numbers Democrats have in the Senate and the House, I think was just crazy if anybody ever thought that. I'm not sure that many people thought that. But you did see some conversations around like FDR-type legislation. And, and FDR had big, big majorities in Congress. Biden doesn't. These are really small small majorities. In the Senate, it's 50-50, where one person, two people, and in the House, just only a handful of people can upend the whole thing. So it makes kind of analyzing what's going on really difficult. Most of what we've seen, I think not totally unfairly from the media, has portrayed all this as progressives versus moderates. And, And there is truth to that. But we're talking about small enough majorities, right, where in the House if Democrats lose it, what is it, it's like six or seven people, they can't pass anything. And so six or seven people is not all that indicative of a wing of the party, or it might not be. So plenty of moderates who might not have any issue with the $3.5 trillion price tag on the Build Back Better plan. There are plenty of progressives who might have been totally fine voting first on the Infrastructure bill. So I think there is some truth to the progressive versus moderate framing of this. But I think the more accurate framing is simply the Biden administration and Democrats are trying to pass really ambitious legislation with really small majorities. And that's really difficult.
3: 538 contributor Julia Azari has a piece coming out tomorrow, actually, that kind of poses the question of to what extent are the current fights in Congress emblematic of a party that is having, you know, a big tent, healthy kind of disagreement, or perhaps something that points to internal fault lines that could be a real problem for the Democratic Party moving forward? Because oftentimes, you know, the comparison to the progressives and the Democratic Party as either the Tea Party among Republicans or the House Freedom Caucus in the sense of like upsetting the party's overall agenda there. And, you know, something that I think Julia argues in the piece and is really sharp is that right now kind of what Micah was getting at is that a lot of these ideological fights we see don't necessarily map on to really neat electoral explanations. Yes, someone like Manchin is from a state that is heavily white. He is a rare type of senator within either party at this point. But some of the other moderates who've been resistant to the bigger price tag come from more diverse constituencies. While as not every progressive who's currently not promising to back the infrastructure bill doesn't necessarily come from the most diverse district either, which has meant then in addition to like that not mapping on neatly, like negative partisanship is such that you're not gonna imagine that Republicans are gonna say, okay, progressives, we'll work on you in X, Y, and Z, and then see those coalitions
2: shift. Part of what defined the House Freedom Caucus Tea Party faction on the Republican side was not just its ideology, but its commitment to anti-establishmentism. In part, those representatives and senators define themselves in opposition to the establishment, including the establishment of their own party. We haven't seen that as much on the Democratic side. Most of the debate we've seen has been about policy which I think you could argue is a healthier form of party disagreement to have. That said, I think maybe that's where you see some difference between cinema and Manchin and why there has been a bit more anger directed at cinema versus Manchin. As Sarah was saying, it's much easier to see the electoral calculus for Manchin balking at all this. Trump won his state by like 200 points. Arizona is basically a 50-50 state at this point. Cinema at the same time, has been really reluctant to add detail to why she's opposed to a lot of this. And so you kind of get the sense more that it's her just distancing herself from the party overall and trying to carve out more of a, you know, McCain, Maverick-esque image there. And that kind of disagreement in a party, I think, can be much harder to manage from the party's point of view.
0: Yeah, we're getting into a little bit of the motivations behind, well, the key moderates in the Senate, at least, Cinema and Manchin, staking out their position that $3.5 trillion is too big. I think this is talked about in many different terms, in terms of electorally, which we've discussed here, in terms of just their own ideological beliefs. If they think that too much government spending is bad and that this is too much government spending, commentators and critics, particularly of cinema, have also raised the idea of donor pressure, essentially that these policies seem to be relatively popular, particularly amongst Democrats. Why would a senator go up against the idea of taxing the wealthy if taxing the wealthy is popular? Does it seem as though donor pressure is playing a role here? How would we go about describing their motivations beyond, as we've said, Manchin's electoral motivations? Because he is in a very red state.
1: I think to some extent, donor pressure always exists, or special interests pressure always exists. I mean, that's just, that's sort of a fact of life in politics really anywhere, much less in the United States, especially if you think about it in terms of, say, I don't know, changing something about the way Medicare works or making it easier for like Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Well, pharma is not going to like that. So pharma has their lobbyists on K Street this very well-organized lobbying outfit, go in and put pressure on someone like Cinema or Manchin or other senators. And they'll say, okay, well, maybe we'll we'll remove that part from the eventual legislation. And even if it pulls really well to have Medicare negotiate drug prices, you have this conflict between sort of a concentrated interest putting pressure on Congress and a diffuse interest across the public saying, oh, we like this idea. But there's not really that concentrated lobbying effort on behalf of that larger interest, potentially at least. So for me, I think it's just sort of a classic example of, unfortunately or fortunately, how, how things work in terms of political influence. There are larger questions about money and politics and things that can be done to reform that sort of thing. But I, I think that's just sort of a fundamental way things work. And unless there's some major change, that's just something that, that's a part of how our political system functions.
2: Yeah, Galen, you ask, why would a senator go against things that are clearly popular overall and popular within that senator's party? The better question is maybe, why would they? There's lots of research that shows there's not much of a correlation between sort of how much support any given policy has with the public and how likely that policy is to become law. Instead, the interests and desires of donors, of the wealthy, of the elites, tend to have a much more determinative effect on what kind of things become law. But I don't know, honestly, part of what's been, frankly, kind of weird, but also interesting about this whole negotiation, look, most of this is like, as we were talking about before, pretty predictable and pretty normal. It's a party trying to figure out how to pass two big pieces of legislation. Cinema though, hasn't said all that much about what kind of bill she would support, what parts of the current bill she wants out of there. And so that makes it harder to speculate even on why she's doing what she's doing. I think clearly she has some electoral read of her state and we could debate whether it's right or wrong. But she has some electoral political read of her state that is making her think she should Put distance between herself and the Democratic Party writ large, or at the very least, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Beyond that, her positions are certainly line up with some of the donor meetings she's met. You know, it's it's hard to say what's what's in her mind and what's in her heart. Obviously, well, to the point
0: about cinema's electoral calculations and whether they're right or wrong, I think this is being debated amongst the. Commentariat at the moment, in terms of whether she's ripe for a primary and pretty vulnerable, or whether she actually has a good read on the mavericky nature of Arizona. And a National Journal article recently made the argument that no, she has a pretty good read on the electorate of Arizona. In fact, she has a plus seven net approval rating in the state, whereas Mark Kelly, who's been much more in line, the other senator from Arizona, Democrat, who's been much more in line with Democrats on all of these issues, has a plus four, for example. So while cinema may have lost some Democrats, she's picked up lots of independents. And in fact, she has a 40% approval rating amongst Republicans in the state. So maybe she understands the coalition that she needs to win within Arizona better than people who say that she's going to get primaried and lose. Are either of those arguments more
2: persuasive to you all? I would not ascribe much meaning to the difference between a plus seven and a plus four net approval rating. The fact that those are so similar suggests to me that Maybe people aren't paying that much attention to what's going on in Congress right now. And in fact, we have polling data to support that. Secondly, cinema, according to polls, has sort of traded Democratic approval for an uptick in approval among Republicans and among independents. That might sort of net out right now in her approval rating. I'm not sure it nets out in terms of her ability to get reelected. Those 40% of Republicans who approve of her are they going to vote for her over a Republican candidate? I sort of find that hard to believe. So I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion on sort of like, is Cinema's read of Arizona's electoral politics right? But I think looking the way those numbers were looked at seemed a bit off to me.
1: Yeah, see, I kind of think that her read might not be wrong in the sense that where she's coming from is that she was the first Democrat to win a Senate seat in Arizona since 1988. She was the first Democrat to win statewide there in a federal election, at least, since Bill Clinton carried the state in 96. Now, obviously, Mark Kelly won in 2020, while Biden was carrying the state as well. So we have some more recent history that suggests maybe running as slightly more liberal or mainstream liberal can work in Arizona. But I think her calculation is I can tick off people in my own party to a certain extent but most of them, practically all of them are going to vote for me on election day. But if I can win a few more people in the middle independents and pick off a few conservative Republicans who aren't terribly thrilled with the Trump direction of the party, that's going to win me re-election in 2024 when there's a presidential race at the top of the ticket and you have know, a very high turnout election. So I think that's sort of her take on this. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I think if you're thinking about like Maricopa County, Phoenix and the Phoenix suburbs being sort of the key to the state, you know, it strikes me that there are voters there who have moved in the Democrats direction because they are not thrilled with the direction of the Republican Party. But at the same time, embracing a progressive approach may not be a ticket to winning. And obviously this could also depend on who our opponent is in 2024 and whatnot on the Republican side. With all that being said, there is some risk here of a primary challenge. I think an interesting difference between Cinema and Manchin is that there's practically no Democratic bench in West Virginia. So Manchin could be as moderate or even conservative as he wants to be. And really, there's not going to be a significant primary challenge because there's no one out there to really make that significant primary challenge. For Cinema, it is true that she could frustrate the party base enough that Someone like, uh, I don't know, Ruben Gallego, who's a member of the House from there, for instance, and was rumored to be considering running previously for the Senate, could challenge her from the left in a primary and maybe find traction. And you would have somebody with a big enough profile and the ability to run a statewide campaign to take her on. So that's, I guess, the risk in all this. But I do think that I could tick off my base to some extent, because by doing so, some of those independents and Republicans will be warmer to me and maybe a few will even vote for me and that'll be enough for me to win. That approach, like I can see the logic in her approach. I'm not sure it's correct, but I can see the logic.
3: As Jeffrey was getting at, like, Arizona has shifted to the left since the 2012 presidential election. It's a similar story for Georgia. And something we were talking about earlier this year that seems to be at least true in the Senate is Ossoff and Warnock ran to energize the base. They've been more liberal, even though Georgia is as much of a swing state as a state like Arizona. And, you know, does that go to the turnout situation in Georgia versus Arizona? Is there more of an independent streak? And that's why, you know, as Jeffrey, outlining cinema feels the need to kind of appeal to more independent voters. I think part of this is wrapped up too in the fact that she's a freshman senator. And so it's like, here's Manchin, an elder statesman of the party making these demands. I think there's a little bit of umbrage that cinema's doing the same and not necessarily being clear either in what her price tag is, right? Like Manchin reportedly told Schumer what his price tag was over the summer. We just learned about it now, but like, he's been a little bit more Upfront with his cards, whereas cinema hasn't, and I think that has at least nationally upset Democrats but to Jeffrey's point, I think you're seeing some of the calculus there at least on cinema's end that within Arizona itself she can risk alienating maybe some Democratic voters as long as it doesn't tank her support among independents in the state. But she herself has had an interesting career where she didn't necessarily start off that moderate. So I think it's just been challenging for people covering the story to figure out where she stands on the issue and like why. It's not necessarily clear cut, particularly since Arizona has become a bluer state, why she is leaning so hard into that moderate positioning there and kind of putting herself on the same level as Manchin in terms of controlling these conversations in Congress.
1: Just to remind people they may not know, but Sinema at one time was like a Green Party activist, like way back in the early aughts, I believe, like Iraq War era. So it is, to Sarah's point, a very interesting sort of evolution as a political figure.
0: Yeah. And also, so getting at your comparison between Georgia and Arizona, 538 does elasticity scores for every state in the country. It's something of a proxy for how swingy the voters are. Georgia is just about the least elastic state in the country. So Alabama is truly the least elastic. And then D.C. is less elastic even than Alabama, which essentially means that these are turnout exercises, elections for the most part in Georgia. There are swing voters, of course, in the Atlanta suburbs, but that when you compare Georgia to other states, there aren't that many. Whereas Arizona is more swingy than the nation as a whole. It's not close to being the swingiest. The swingiest are like Alaska, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, but it's up there. It's in the upper half of the states in terms of swinging back and forth between candidates. As we wrap up this part of the podcast, I mentioned last week that through these negotiations, we were going to learn maybe which part of the party had more power. Does it seem like we're learning through this process where the power lies within the Democratic Party, or do
2: we still have to wait and see? I don't think we're going to learn that through this. I just think Democrats need every member they have on board, basically, in both chambers to do anything, let alone really big stuff. And so I don't think you can read that much into which wing of the party is more powerful, because in this case, like every member has Has a lot of power. But
0: the end result is going to be indicative, right? Like what they all end up voting on will be indicative of who has the most say within the party.
2: But it depends what baseline you use. So part of me actually thinks progressives have played all this really smartly. Was it totally predictable, as we were saying before, that a three and a half trillion dollar Build Back Better plan would run into the resistance we're seeing now? Yes, it was predictable. And so that makes me think that if we eventually get to the point where Democrats pass a $1 trillion infrastructure plan and let's say a $2 trillion social programs plan or what they were calling like soft infrastructure, compared to what we would have thought five years ago, that is a huge progressive achievement, huge historic. Now, compared to where things were at the beginning of these negotiations or what progressives in the House and Senate originally wanted, yeah, it would be a compromise. But it just depends on where where your baseline is.
3: Right. And I think what Mike is getting at here, too, is we are having these conversations because progressives now have a seat at the table and are getting to push priorities that are important to them. Yes, it might not be the funding total that they want, but like, that, again, is part of governing. And the fact that the Biden administration is passing something on climate change or is working to pass something on considering health care and nursing care as part of human infrastructure, like that is very different from where we were in the Obama administration. And so it's not a clear cut victory, I think, for either faction, but provided something of that nature ends up on the table and passes, to be clear, like this isn't quite clear, let There's a lot for Congress to push through. I mean, it's hard to argue that that isn't an achievement for progressives.
0: All right. Well, this actually gets at a topic that we are going to discuss next. So let's move on. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. This next topic that we're going to discuss was actually inspired by a question from a listener. Here's what they asked. Quote, I had a quick question after listening to you all's latest episode about whether the Democrats will be able to pull off their agenda. I'm a 21-year-old neuroscience student, so my only knowledge of politics is from you guys. Uh, I don't know that I would recommend that, but thank you. Um, why is there a common theme of Democrats making promises, student loan debt, immigration reform, voting rights, etc and not fulfilling them? You would think that since they have the majority in the White House, Senate and House, that anything would be possible. Why is it that when Republicans want something done, they usually find a way? Perhaps I'm missing something here. So I think this question brings up maybe, a broader question about perceptions of which party is winning or losing more on the issues that they care about. And as I mentioned at the top, both Republican and Democratic voters often feel like they lose more, according to the polling on this topic. So I want to try to unpack this a little bit and see if there's a way that we can answer this. Maybe it's unanswerable, but we'll try. So when it comes to both Democrats and Republicans often feeling like they're losing, who's right? Do we have data that can help us determine if one party is actually winning more than the other on the policies that they care about? Well,
3: if we look at our Biden score data and our Trump score data, you can see that Democrats, at least when it comes to legislation, have been more uniform than Republicans in passing the president's agenda, right? There was more disagreement among Republicans under Trump. But that's really just one measure of trying to assess whether which party is winning. If you look at the number of competitive districts, those have long been in decline. There are more Republican-leaning districts than Democratic districts. There are also a number of structural factors at play, whether that's redistricting, whether that's House elections, Senate elections, the Electoral College, in which there are structural biases that benefit Republicans. We had a great piece earlier this year from Nathaniel Rakage and Laura Bronner that kind of dived into the different ways in which Republicans increasingly enjoy an institutional advantage in our elections. But on on this question of who's winning and who's not winning. What I find so interesting in that is like, there's not a clear-cut answer, and it seems mostly driven how you answer that question about how you feel about government writ large. So there was this 2015 Pew poll, and it asked people, you know, which party is winning or losing in politics? And generally speaking, those who thought their side had been winning had a positive view of the federal government, whereas those who thought their side had been losing had a lot more anger towards the government. And this was a recent poll from CNN earlier this year, but it kind of maps on to what Pew found, which I found interesting. And they had asked, you know, Americans, do you think democracy is under threat? And more Republicans said yes than Democrats, because that was highly correlated to job approval of Biden. And more Republicans are dissatisfied with how Biden is doing. And, you know, it kind of ties, I think, overall to this idea of the midterm curse where the out party, generally speaking, makes gains from the president's party, perhaps because there's this higher level of dissatisfaction. It's interesting, right, that this question comes from a listener who is perceiving this among Democrats, which might speak to some of the coverage around the current fights among Democrats in Congress right now and what's being depicted as a loss versus a win. But it seems as if this overall feeling among Americans on which party is winning and losing is cyclical and seems to be driven by what your view of government is overall.
0: Sarah, I do want to drill down for one second on that polling because it's somewhat cyclical. But you see in that Pew poll from 2015, that a majority of both Democrats and Republicans said that their side lost more than it won. So this is 2015, Obama is in office. 79% of Republicans say that their party loses more than it wins. 52% of Democrats said that their party loses more than it wins. Pew asked this again in 2017, when Trump is in office, a year after he was elected, and more Republicans still said that their party lost more than it won a year after Trump was elected. Now, I think in 2020, they asked again. And by then, a majority of Republicans said that their party was winning more than it was losing. But it seems like people really don't feel like they're winning that much in politics, almost regardless of the specific electoral situation at the time.
2: Yeah, this is a tough one. So I think in terms of who's right, who's wrong, I think everybody's right and everybody's wrong. And it just depends what your baseline is. (laughs) I mean, OK, look, on the one hand, right? I think the country, by a whole host of metrics, has moved left over the last 40-odd years or so. Think about where the country was under Reagan, for example, or where Bill Clinton was as a Democratic president versus Obama versus now Biden. Or look at where the public opinion is on issues like same-sex marriage, even issues like immigration. The country overall, I think, has moved left. And then if you want to get quite literal, which party is is winning, if you look at measures of self-identification, in general these days, more people identify and or lean with Democrats than identify and or lean with Republicans. So in that sense, and in a lot of senses, Democrats are winning. Now, why do they feel like they're losing? I think it goes to the structural things Sarah was talking about, at least in part, Democrats feel like there are a lot of issues where they feel like they are in the right. The data shows they have the majority of the public on their side, and yet they can't get those issues passed. And they feel a disconnect between how much public support Democratic candidates and Democratic policies have and how that's translated into elected officials. So the Senate has this record set in Republican bias. There's the same sort of bias in the House similar bias, at least in the last two elections, towards Republicans in the Electoral College. So from the Democratic point of view, if you're looking at sort of these broad measures of the political culture in the country and then looking at our political system, you're saying, how come we're not gaining as much as we should based on these raw measures? From the Republican point of view, I think in a whole lot of cultural ways, they do see themselves losing ground, you know, on these moral issues, on these family issues. I don't know. I think everybody's right and everybody's wrong. But even when you look at policy, I mean, you look at the last administration,
0: Republicans weren't able to repeal the Affordable Care Act after running on it for a decade. The single biggest issue, seemingly, for President Trump was the wall. They got nowhere close to a policy win there being a wall from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean. There are broader policy arguments about government spending that Republicans seem to absolutely fine to spend a lot of money under Trump during the pandemic. The Democratic arguments during the Iraq War about the United States overreaching militarily and things like that, many Republicans have adopted. So even not just on the kind of family values, the kind of debates that we saw a lot of in the 80s and 90s, it seems like on a lot of hard policy, Republicans, one, haven't been able to pass their agenda and have... In some cases, even switched to Democratic talking points.
2: Well, sure. But again, it depends what your baseline is. Like, the Trump administration did a lot of things in terms of environmental regulations. They dismantled a whole load of those. They put a bunch of people on courts. Those are clear victories. So I think you get into trouble if you start pointing to this policy or that policy. Like, I could say, Democrats haven't passed a pathway to citizenship. You know, where's that? That's something they've been talking about for a long time. What about gun control measures? Democrats haven't done anything on that, something they've been talking about for a long time. So Republicans, I think, have been very successful due to these structural advantages in stymieing Democratic policymaking. That's not passing their own policies per se, although there's been some of that. But, you know, what's the Republican ideology now anyway? The party has become mostly defined in its opposition to Democrats more than its own coherent worldview, you know?
3: Right. And on that note, PolitiFact tracks the different administrations and the promises that different presidents have kept or broken from the campaign. And so Obama overall it was like he broke 23% of his promises. Whereas Trump during his four years, according to PolitiFact, broke 53%. So I think that kind of feeds into the perception, too, that Micah is getting at that Republicans are really artful when it comes to obstruction and being unified on that front. But perhaps when it comes to the task of legislating, Our Biden score and Trump score captures that as well. There's just less cohesion within the Republican Party for pushing through some of their legislative priorities. And, you know, it's early yet under the Biden administration, but right now political fact doesn't mark any promises broken at this point. I'm sure that will change.
1: You know, I see this also a psychological thing that also connects to how polarized things are. So people take losses hard or take failures hard and the things that they do achieve, they may say, is, if Democrats have full control of government or Republicans have full control of government, it's like, oh, well, we did the thing that we set out to do, so that's good. But we didn't do X, Y, and Z, and that creates frustration, and maybe you don't feel like you're winning as much as you feel like you should be winning because you had full control of things. And you know, you could think of, say, the failure to repeal Obamacare as a, a good example of that for the Republicans, for instance. And I think that this feeling is perhaps magnified by the fact that. The parties have gotten so far apart and things are so polarized in politics now. And there's so much of what you know we talk about a lot, negative partisanship, where you just have such a strong dislike for the other side that if you see them as having stopped you or standing in your way or feel like your own side, which maybe you're not even that happy with, but you really don't like the other side, isn't doing what you wanted them to do. It just creates, I think, opportunities for having this real deep psychological frustration and feeling like you're losing, even if the party you voted for is in power and is doing some of the things that they talked about doing. But I do think that that negative partisanship and hyper polarization may make that feeling even worse, you know, even stronger for voters. So I could sort of see why like we got this question in the first place, even if Democrats are doing some things.
2: Two thoughts real quick. One is, This idea is why I stopped following sports really closely. I grew up like outside Philly, and so I grew up a big Sixers fan and a big Eagles fan. And I realized at some point, kind of after college, that I felt the losses much more than the wins. At that point, there weren't that many wins, which was part of it. But just like, eventually the Eagles won the Super Bowl. That made me happy for like 20 minutes, maybe. But those four consecutive losses in the NFC Championship game, I felt much more deeply, which is why I don't really follow the Eagles anymore. But I think that's part of what's going on here. The other wrinkle I would just add in is because policymaking at the federal level has been such a dumpster fire for so many years, we've seen much more activity in the states. And I think at the state level, this question is much more difficult to answer because you look at at some states— And Republicans have had huge success in moving policy rightward, right? And you look at some states, and Democrats have had huge success in moving policy leftward. So I don't know. I just want to add that wrinkle. And at the state level, it feels like maybe it's easier for the parties to, quote, unquote, win and and have their way. We broaden this out a little bit. But
0: the specific question that this listener originally asked is, Why is it that when Republicans want something done, they usually find a way, suggesting that Democrats don't? And the policies that he mentioned in particular were student loan debt, immigration reform, voting rights. Is there any sense that, maybe we've already answered this, that Republicans are better at achieving policy goals, finding a way, than Democrats? I don't
2: think that's true.
1: Yeah, I don't either. I think Republicans have proven to be very good at blocking things. However, actually passing significant legislation on their terms has been difficult they got a tax cut in 2017 that's one of the things that they have done very well at which is it's cuz it's something that can actually bring the entire caucus together is cutting taxes but they struggle on some of the other policy issues so they get justices on the supreme court and in lower federal courts they get tax cuts but they haven't been able to do quite as much, at least on their big ticket items that they've talked about.
0: And on the federal level.
1: Yeah, and on the federal level, to be clear on the federal level, because I think Micah's point about the states is a very good one.
3: And again, we've been making this distinction between federal and state. And, and to drill into the state level here for just a moment, that is where Republicans have had a lot more success. That was particularly true in 2020. And as a result of that, it's both acting as laboratories for the democracy in which they're testing bills here on critical race theory or voting restrictions. And that can have a lot of impact and effect in both the state, but then also on the federal level. So it's hard to disconnect the two. And I do think in that sense, Republicans have long had kind of a history, particularly since the Obama era and having a lot of success in winning state elections. They'll have a heavy hand in the redistricting process as a result because they simply control more states where redistricting is happening this year. And so it is hard to separate that way in which Republicans have, I think, been very successful in passing through a lot of priorities that they're not as successful doing at the federal level.
0: To kind of throw a curveball in here at the end of this conversation, after framing politics as a world of wins and losses, is that the best way of viewing politics? Is it possible for both parties to win or both parties to lose together? Is politics about winning and losing ultimately?
2: There's part of me that wants to answer no to this, that wins and losses is not a good way of looking at it. And that's the part of me that watched West Wing growing up. The other part of me, though, thinks that, sad as it might be, the two major parties right now in the country, to a large extent, do have kind of mutually exclusive visions of the country. The Democratic Party is committed to sort of a multicultural democracy. The Republican Party, at least large swaths of it, is not. On a range of other issues, you know, whether it's like the social safety net or taxes, well, actually, taxes is maybe a counterexample where if Republicans want a 20 percent tax rate and Democrats want a 40 percent tax rate, it's possible for both sides to meet somewhere in the middle. But I don't know, on a range of other issues, there's actually not really a middle ground. So maybe it is about wins and losses more than I think a lot of people would like it to be.
1: As Lee Dropman, who's a contributor for 538, has pointed out, you know our politics seems to have become more and more zero-sum. Our elections are zero-sum. You win or you lose. But our politics, because there seems to be less ground for bipartisan agreement on really anything, fewer people are going to feel like they've won because you're just going to have fewer people who come to the table and are part of whatever the agreement or solution they come up with is. So you're just going to have less of that winning feeling and more of that losing feeling as a part of our politics.
3: I push back a little in that I think politics has probably always been zero sum, but I think what we're really seeing manifest now is that there just isn't that much geographic diversity in the parties and educational diversity. It's increasingly... If I told you that I was a white evangelical from Kentucky, you would probably think I was Republican because the bulk of white evangelicals did vote for Republicans in 2020. Though, as we just wrote recently on the site, you know, 7% did vote Democratic. There's just though overall, like, less overlap now between the two parties. So even though I don't think our perceptions of what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to be a Republican are any better. Like This was one of my favorite pieces from 2018. Democrats are wrong about Republicans. Republicans are wrong about Democrats. It was this big poll where it was asking you, what are your perceptions of the other party? Everything was wildly off. I think if you did that poll today, it would still be true. I think, though, maybe the margins are shrinking because increasingly the social identities that these two parties take on, there's just less overlap. And so that makes our politics, I think, more contentious because it's deeply personal as well.
0: All right. Well, that's the answer we've arrived at, even if it is the more depressing one, as you mentioned, Micah. Let's move on momentarily and talk about the governor's race in Virginia. But first.
2: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling
3: author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
0: We're a month away from statewide elections in both Virginia and New Jersey. As more of a purple state than either New Jersey or California... Virginia is generally considered to be the best statewide bellwether of the current political environment. According to our polling average, which we just launched last week, Democratic gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe currently leads Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin by three points. So first and foremost, I want to test the political media's assumptions here, which is, is Virginia a good bellwether for the state of national politics today in the fall of 2021?
1: I think Virginia for a short time between like 2008 and 12 was a particularly good bellwether because actually in both of those elections, it had the result in those presidential elections closest to the national result. And so for a moment there, I thought my home state was going to be the new Ohio. But since that time, Virginia has trended a bit more to the left. In fact, to the point where Biden won by roughly four and a half nationally in 2020, but he won Virginia by about 10 points. So it's, it's clearly more democratic now than the country as a whole. That doesn't mean that a Republican can't win there, however, but I do think it's sort of like this. We often observe elections in very much a winner loss kind of zero sum way as we were just talking about. So if Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee wins, it will be seen as very bad news for Democrats whether or not that is 100% true, I don't know. But I do think that historically, there's been a pattern where oftentimes the party that is not in the White House wins the Virginia governorship, and it's seen as a bit of a reaction. However, if Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee, wins but only wins by like a point, you know, I don't know if that's substantively much different than Youngkin winning by a point in terms of if you're trying to draw some sort of take away from the Virginia result. So if it's a really close election and part of the other wins, you know, that would suggest that Virginia has moved slightly to the right relative to where it was in the 2020 presidential election, which might be an indication of, you know, higher energy on the Republican side, some dissatisfaction maybe among some white college educated voters in the DC suburbs, if they shift a little bit toward Republicans compared to where they were in the 2020 presidential election. So it's like those sorts of takeaways, I think, can help you. But I, I don't, Think I would want to take one election and say that's an indication of X, Y, and Z with any sort of absolute certainty.
2: Yeah. So, two thoughts here. One is like almost any state or election, as long as the electorate is big enough and diverse enough that it's like somewhat representative of the national electorate. And by that, I just mean like not that it necessarily mirrors the country overall. But just that it's big enough where you can pick up on some signals there. But any any state like that can be a decent bellwether as long as you look at the results there relative to the political history of the state. So as Jeff was saying, Virginia is now a blue state. If McAuliffe wins by one point, I think that should be an encouraging signal for Republicans about the current political moment, everything else being equal. But- As Jeff said, it's just one election and any single election is not a good predictor of where things will be in midterms. We actually looked at this a few years ago of like, does the gubernatorial race in Virginia do a good job kind of predicting how the upcoming midterm elections will play out? And the answer is no, it doesn't. It's all over the place. So should we look at the results in Virginia and do some analysis of what happened and what that tells us about the current political moment and maybe ask some questions about what that could portend for 2022. Yeah, we should do that. But all the while knowing that this is just one small piece of evidence and not a particularly compelling piece of evidence. And of course, the reason that we have looked at
0: Virginia in the past, whether or not it's an indicator of how the midterms will go is because traditionally New Jersey and Virginia are the weird states that have these statewide elections in an off year. Given that you said, Jeff, it's possible that a Republican could win the governor's race in Virginia. What we're at least going to see is what a competitive statewide election looks like in 2021. I would argue that we didn't really see that in California for the recall. And New Jersey is quite a ways away from where Virginia is in terms of being competitive. So given that we're seeing a situation where both parties are putting in money and making serious efforts to try to win this race, what are the key issues that are driving this race?
1: I think you're seeing a lot of the same conversations that we're seeing in national politics in terms of, for instance, COVID-19 is very much on people's minds. You have Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee, trying to connect Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, to Donald Trump, who's not terribly popular figure in Virginia when it comes to things like COVID. I I think McAuliffe ran an ad that said, like Donald Trump, Glenn Youngkin isn't taking COVID-19 seriously. And we have polling that suggests that majorities of Virginians, or Virginia voters at least, support vaccines for teachers and healthcare staff, you know, mandatory vaccinations. And so it would seem like that's an issue where maybe McAuliffe can win. It might be a way for him to keep some college-educated voters who have shifted left to stay in the Democratic camp in the upcoming election. But at the same time, you have Yunkin bringing in crime as an issue and trying to say that McAuliffe will make Virginia less safe. And that's something we've obviously heard from Republicans for a while now. I mean, really dating back to Black Lives Matter marches after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020. And And obviously there is data that Republicans will point to that, you know, violent crime was up in 2020, and this is something that Republicans really want to make hay out of. I mean, they want this to be an issue that can pull some voters back in, in places like suburban Northern Virginia, where they know that they're going to probably lose those areas, but if they can cut the margins, uh, it might be a path for Yunkin to win. Those are just a couple examples of national topics that are being sold in Virginia by the two candidates.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I know we don't want to read too much into it, but a recent Monmouth poll had also asked Virginia voters like top issues. And unsurprisingly, because this is often true in elections, the top issue is the economy, right? 39%. And we've seen in the ensuing fights within Congress, Republicans kind of building up this narrative leading into 2022 that Democrats are spending too much money. I'm curious how things will play out in Congress before the Virginia election and how that playbook either works for Republicans, in Virginia or doesn't really land there as as well.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a little history of things going on in D.C. mucking up Virginia gubernatorial races. You know, in 2013, we had a government shutdown just before the election. And a lot of people thought that that really hurt King Cuccinelli, who was the Republican nominee that year. But around the same time or just a little bit after that, you had the rollout of the Obamacare portal and it was a complete catastrophe. And so there was some thought that that actually harmed McAuliffe a little bit who was at that time was running and ended up winning and served his first term as governor now wants his old job back. So it would not shock me that events in D.C. could influence the race. And I think there is some concern on the Democratic side that if some sort of if they fail to pass some of this legislation by the time of the election, that that will discourage Democrats and maybe motivate Republicans and that that could affect it. I think that's tough to say, but there are all sorts of little lurking things out there like, oh, do they fail to raise the debt ceiling? Is there some sort of economic calamity that hits in the couple of weeks before the election or something? I mean, it's just, it's tough to say, but it's definitely true that national politics Ways on the Virginia race to some extent. And I think most specifically, if you think about like Joe Biden and his approval rating. So he's a little underwater in our tracker. I think last time I checked, it was like he's at like 45% approval nationally, 49% disapproval. So in Virginia, that might work out to like kind of net even or in that vicinity. Maybe he's slightly underwater if you sort of consider Virginia being slightly to the left of the country as a whole. And so if Biden's position worsens over the next month, you know, maybe that's how Youngkin can end up pulling out a a narrow victory in the end. At the same time, if Biden's rating stays about where it is or goes up a little bit, you know, maybe that's good news for McCall. So there's definitely an impact there of the national story on what's going on in Virginia.
2: The other thing I'll be interested in is to see how the polling does in Virginia, because we're kind of seeing a pattern start to develop of polls underestimating Republicans in red states and underestimating Democrats in blue states. You saw that in California with the recall election, right, where Newsom ended up surviving very, very easily, even more easily than polls showed at the end. And polls showed him winning easily at the end. So in Virginia right now, McAuliffe has like a three-point lead, right, something like that in our polling average. The election in 2017 was similar in that the Democratic candidate, Northam in that case, had like a three or four-point edge. Everybody was sort of talking about the race as a toss-up, and polling was showing it relatively close, although Northam with a clear edge. But he ended up winning pretty easily, which isn't to say the same thing will happen this time, but just given that, and given that we have sort of seen this pattern of polls underestimating the partisan lean of the state, I'm curious if that will happen again, but maybe it won't. All right, well, we will certainly be tracking this over the coming month,
0: and we will have an answer to that question in a month. But let's leave it there for now. Thank you, Sarah, Jeff, and Micah. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing, and Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple podcast store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening and we will see you soon.